to to put it short, to keep it simple, it's it's been a challenge to have them on the property and Croft sure. on the property as well. Um, in an effort to try to mitigate some of this, I built uh, what some people, or I guess the founder of it, uh, calls a, they called it. A- All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Standing Stone Podcast. Uh, Today, we have an extra special guest and uh, a feel-good guest, but kind of in a different kind of way, all right? So um, anybody that's followed along has heard or seen or watched me complain a little bit about having sore shoulders and different things in just in the world that we live in, right? I talked about it specifically when we... We talk about our easy lead, okay? I heal dogs and I work dogs a lot, and that puts a lot of strain and pressure and fatigue on my arms and shoulders. And we created our easy lead specifically because of I get tired of dogs jerking me around. And I'm sure that you feel very similarly. So, in that process, though, I still haven't ended up without some level of occupational based injury, whether that be, um, gunfire related or dogs jerking me around related or any and all of the above, you name it, it's all there. And then couple that with the fact that I do love archery, which is a big strainer on shoulders, especially when not done maybe a hundred percent properly or, um, you know, form could be adjusted. All of those things are just, you don't have the proper strength. So, I, being a uh, of the age group that I am, did not go to a <laughs> actual doctor. Um, that I went to a, a physical location. I, I reached out to uh, Christian Williams here with Archery Strong because I saw some of the stuff that he had online, and I thought it was really cool. So we have with us today Christian Williams. Um, I appreciate you being here, and I'm excited for this conversation. We have a little bit of time to chat specifically about what you do and why you do it. And then also, uh, you have a short hair, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Ethan. I'm looking forward to talking with you and have a conversation as well. Uh, like Ethan said, my name is Christian Williams and I am soaking up every day with a new uh, German short hair pointer. So my wife and I are, ha- are having a lot of fun with him. We're in rural central Pennsylvania and uh, we're we're out here amidst the farmland, and we've got this this new guy. His name is Croft, which I can tell the story quickly about his name at some point, maybe during this conversation. Uh, but we're having like a lot Laura of fun. Croft. That's what Tomb what Raider? everybody think thinks of, but it's a way <laughs> way cooler story. Okay, I'm way, excited way to hear your story. But uh, yeah, so I'm I have experiences throughout my life as a kid and young adult uh, bird hunting, primarily with my dad. Uh, but as far as having my own bird dog, man, I am, I'm pretty fresh, pretty new, and I have a little bit to go off of, which I'm thankful for, but it's conversations like these, seeing some of your, uh, your information and material, uh, and then of course, just getting out in the field with them. That's going to be a fun adventure and fun journey to, uh, become more proficient with him and, uh, to enjoy the, the hunts with him. So 100%, 100%. Yeah. Well, um, I want to know first and foremost, a little bit of background. I mean, you've got some of it on your website, but tell me a little bit about you, how you kind of got into what you're doing now. And is, uh, is Archery Strong a full-time deal for you now, or you, you do it more as a, a sidekick? 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, Archery Strong is my business, and I started it about uh, before years ago in August. It was August 2018. And for a large portion of my life, uh, since I was probably, I think I was maybe 12 or 13 when I got my first pair of, pair of weights, uh, dumbbells, I really enjoyed fitness, really enjoyed uh, you know exercising, training for different sports, things like that. And as that developed, uh, I also really found a passion in archery hunting in my teenage years. And I was blessed to grow up uh, with a dad and in a family that loved to bird hunt, loved to uh, deer hunt, hike, fish, just enjoy the outdoors as a whole. So as I kind of found my groove with uh, these couple of different, we'll say, passions uh, between fitness and archery, that led me to go to uh, a college here in Pennsylvania called Slippery Rock, where I earned a degree in exercise science and really didn't have a super great grasp of what I wanted to do. You know, a kid who thinks, all right, exercise is neat. Exercise is cool. Maybe I'll go for, for that for, uh, when I go to college. And uh, that's what I did. And while I was in college, I continued to ramp up with, with bow hunting and archery hunting. And I was lucky enough to get a job at a sports sports injury clinic and sports mm-hmm. performance clinic my sophomore year of college. And my job there was a movement and corrective exercise specialist. Fancy uh, title there, essentially meaning that I work with individuals to identify the issue that might be occurring at the ankle, knee, hip, shoulder, elbow, back, whatever it might be, identify that issue as number one. And then number two, the big part, and a lot of what I do now is prescribing rehab exercises or what I call corrective exercises to fix the specific issue that we're looking at. And I worked in that job for about five years. Uh, It was an awesome experience learning how to identify uh, issues in function, Uh, issues causing pain, issues in performance. And for some different reasons, I didn't love the job, but out of, or from mostly just an interest, I started this business called Archery Strong, where I was combining what I was doing at the sports injury clinic, which was the corrective exercise and the assessment work. Uh, And I combined that with my other passion for archery. And just like you had said there earlier, a minute or two ago, The shoulders are one of the, uh, we'll say most, one of the the parts of the upper body that are demanded most uh, when you shoot a bow. And they're also one of the regions that break down uh, most often or most quickly when either form's not correct or you just have an individual who's being overloaded or there's a bunch of different reasons. But the shoulders tend to be the highlight there. And what we can do is I'm able to work with an individual to look at what their issue is, talk through the problem, how it's developed, uh, where they're at now. And then based on all the information that I gather from working with that individual, then we go through the corrective exercise process to relieve uh, the shoulder pain or whatever the issue might be. So I now work with a variety of different types of archers, all ages, um, have target archers, have bow hunters, everything in between. And it's been a, a really cool journey to not only combine the things that I enjoy, but my ultimate goal with this, with Archery Strong, is to keep people shooting their bow 
and keep people in the woods being able to archery hunt. Um, for me, archery hunting is, it's really just a big part of my life. Every, almost every single day, there's something in my day that is tied to, uh, to archery hunting or archery. Uh, it's, it's been a platform that has allowed me to grow in a lot of different ways, enjoy the outdoors in a lot of different ways. And I never want that to be taken away from somebody else because I know that, uh, if I lost it, I would, I would be losing a big part of my life and, and a big part of what makes me who I am. So the goal is to keep people enjoying that, um, keep people enjoying archery so that they don't have to put down the bow and, uh, say goodbye to it. Well, I think that, um, the number one thing that I hear people complain about, so me being a bird dog guy, upland guide, I, I get to work with quite a few different people. And I mean, shoulder injuries just in general or shoulder pain, yeah. shoulder problems is common. And I think that that goes hand in hand yeah. with like, uh, you know, the the man mentality, right? Why ask for help when you can strain and hurt <laughs> your shoulders or hurt yourself somehow when and get it done yourself? Right. right? You know, I mean, it's... Um, and you get smarter as you get older, but unfortunately your body pays the toll when you're young and dumb. So, um, <laughs> sure. Absolutely. <laughs> now, uh, folks, me specifically, uh, first ran in this because I was shooting a lot and ended up, um, recognizing that I had whatever this specific region would be kind of over top of my shoulder blade, mm -hmm. um, in my draw arm. And that became very, 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 very uncomfortable. And to the point where I didn't want to shoot at all, exactly what you are explaining. Mm -hmm. Or at least I cut shooting down a lot, right? So right. I'm trying to prepare for the season and being like the average person that doesn't shoot enough in the off season because life gets in the way and it's not in the forefront of my mind. Um, sure, sure. I'm trying to make up for that a little bit. And I'm not talking like, October 1st, I'm trying to get ready for tomorrow, you know, or yeah. something, but it's still, I start ramping up when it's nice enough for me to be consistently outside and shoot more. And, mm -hmm. um, I ended up with shoulder injury. So I reached out to you specifically and at that time got your pre-made program, right? Whatever you mm -hmm. called that at the time, it was a yeah um, injury specific or a pain specific program mm -hmm. that helped right. with breaking down and rebuilding those muscles um, and then corrective action that allowed, you know, me to go through a strength in both shoulders. Cause you know, you do both arms and everything mm -hmm. else to the point where I felt really good and it happened very quickly. I mean, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, 30 days, 45 days, I think is when I felt really, really mm -hmm. good after starting. Now, right. More recently, and this is why we've kind of touched base again. That was a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. I ended up with essentially tendonitis in my elbow and I figured out, I talked to you about a bunch of stuff and I hadn't talked to you yet a hundred percent about what I 100% pinpoint is the problem. I have mm. a, uh, a new little baby boy mm. and he's not so little. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> Baby Cade is a year old and he weighs 27 pounds, I think now, which means nothing to most people, but he's big and he, yeah, sure. He knows what he wants to do and holding him like this mm -hmm. and him fighting 
and then me also being busy yep. and trying to get stuff done is yep. how I injured my shoulder. Okay. And, uh, we've got two boys. All right. So I've got a, a one-year-old and a three and a half year old and the three and a half old, the three and a half year old, excuse me, Aiden is, he's a big boy right up until he sees his brother getting carried around. And he's like, ah, oh, dad, you, can you be amazing and carry me around too? Uh -huh. And it's hard to say no to that. Right. So then all of a sudden sure. I'm fighting two boys and, um, caused tendonitis in my elbow and that hurt really bad. And I tried a couple different things. Yeah. Okay. So I went to, there's a company here in town called elite sports chiropractic and it's misleading because mm -hmm. I've not actually ever been there that he's done hardly any chiropractic work for me specifically. Sure. It's all been, um, exercise based and, mm -hmm. um, he does, it's called, uh, it's a type of massage that basically applies pressure on and then moves your arm or has you work through it. What is, are you familiar yeah, with that? What's that? Yeah. Yeah. It's called ART, active release technique. Okay. So that's what I thought it was. And I thought I was going to say it wrong. The, yep. um, but so he does a lot of that and I've seen some benefits that's in that. Great. And then, yeah. MAT, which is, um, and these are the two I get, it's like a muscle activation therapy or mm -hmm. muscle action activation technique or something to that extent where mm -hmm. you basically pinpoint what the weakness is and then target the, the muscle head on the individual weak muscle fiber. So breaking down your bicep and tricep is truly having individual and different pieces and what is weak, what is strong, and then doing deep tissue massage on the muscle heads to the point where they're aggravated and it activates mm -hmm. them so that they come alive again and can be then, then you provide exercises on top of that to continue strengthening afterward. Have you heard of that sure. one specifically? I'm that, that one is not one that I've been around a whole lot, okay. uh, in the, the time that I've worked in some offices, but there's certainly different techniques Lots like what you're talking about that. Yeah. That people use with, with good, uh, good results. So, so uh, all of it comes down to though, no matter what you're doing, whether it be massage or, or anything else, all of it comes back to, and is recommended, right? Let's get rid of some inflammation, but then we need to do physical therapy of some sort or proper sure. exercises to build stuff again. So um, right, right. It's definitely a cool thing for me to um, find an individual that has a similar type program for self-help stuff because that's what I'm about, right? Um, mm -hmm. And for everybody that is listening, it's primarily um, more geared around dog stuff. And that's what we have our um, online dog training community set up for. We actually do step-by-step -step programs. And that's more the way that this went. You did a consult with me and said, let's mm -hmm. do some stretches. Let's do some movements. What can you do? What can't you do? And you were able to pinpoint by watching um, a pretty good idea of exactly what I needed to do moving forward. Now, I am in right. drastically more pain slash debilitation than the first time around with this elbow side of things. It was to the point where I couldn't pick anything up. It's a right. weird thing. Um, I had, uh, again, come back because I stopped doing exercises, but a little bit of shoulder discomfort, mm -hmm. but, um, that is, I made drastically more grounds with that. And again, mm -hmm. we're coming up on, 
month and a half, almost approaching two months yeah. of exercises now. But I'm to the point where I'm probably 85, 90%. There's still a little dif- discomfort in my That's elbow. That's awesome. Yeah. But um, sure. You know, for the most part, it's really good. So I know yeah. that you have already said that you are you're busy and you're booked and you're all of the things, but if there is uh, somebody that's listening right now that is struggling with anything, stop ignoring it. Okay. Uh, reach out, mm-hmm. get some help. Yeah, yeah. And this would be at least yeah. a good place to start. So check out his stuff that way. Now, um, with that though, we have the, um, our online dog training community via Patreon, where we do a step-by-step mm. build out for people with, check-ins. We do weekly or bi-weekly check-ins. And what that gives us the ability to do is exactly what you did. You can listen to me and say, you know, my shoulder hurts or my elbow hurts or my whatever hurts. And um, without being able to physically watch that I'm actually doing these movements right and be able to pinpoint with your experience and everything else, you don't always know. And that's the same thing that we run into with dogs, right? So you have the short hair, and you're asking questions mm-hmm. specifically to what's going on and what's happening. And that's what like the video aspect of getting to watch and see yeah. the actual body language of the dog or the specific things. That's where um, the experience level that you have, the experience level that we have in the individual things is, is very, very important to be able to watch and see. Uh, aside from being hands on, it's this, it's the next best thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And especially with, what you're doing is you're providing a a resource and a community of value to help guide uh, dog owners and people who are working with their dogs down the right path. And that's something, like I said, it's very valuable. What I do is valuable to a lot of people. And one thing that we've been limited uh, up until, I don't know, recent decade or so is only being able to work in person. Sure. Where, right, you have somebody that brings their dog to you, you work with the dog or the, the owner and the dog. Uh, and that's great. That is best case scenario, as you, like you said, same thing for me, I would, I would always prefer to have someone in person. But if we can still effectively meet the goals for the dog owner, the, the, the dog itself, for the shoulder, the patient that I'm working with, if we can do that from afar, by using this technology, uh, that ultimately leads you in being able to work and help with people from, uh, I'm sure across the country, uh, in your case and in my case too, which, uh, is a beautiful thing. I, I catch myself or find myself, you know, complaining about technology sometimes and, you know, all the different things that we deal with, but man, that is one thing that has just totally changed the game is for you and I both to be able to provide these resources to people that aren't immediately in our area uh, and that wouldn't uh, in the end be able to work with them at all since they're not close. So hundred percent. And it's, it's very much the way that, uh, you know, dog training has been in the past and, you know, it kind of grew, the evolution of it grew with um, the internet opening things up so that people knew that you existed, but you still had to get there. And um, Mm -hmm. you know, when I started, I tried to look online and look for resources and, you got books that were written in the sixties and seventies and there's some right. new stuff out there, but there's not a lot. And when I started, there wasn't even a whole lot of information online. And by the time we started creating videos, it, people had moved down that path, but 
as far as bird dog specific stuff, there's still not a ton out there available. So right. the internet is a, is a, is an amazing thing and I'm, I'm glad to yeah. be able to utilize it that way so that we can Absolutely. help people. Now I want right. to hear, uh, I want to hear the, the name story. Okay. Name story. Yes. Where so, does Croft come in the picture for you? Yeah. So Croft, my short hair pointer, he's now, oh, I think maybe seven months, eight months. And um, the story goes as a, a, an outdoorsman, a hunter and an archery hunter, primarily uh, when I first got into or really was diving into archery hunting, I it was just after I got my driver's license, had gotten my first uh, first truck and uh, I had gotten this nice new bow in May. So I get this bow, I'm, I'm shooting my bow. I'm getting pretty good. After about a month, I'm feeling more confident. You know, I could hit a, a softball at 20 yards pretty consistently. So I was, I remember I was sitting at the dinner table with my dad and I said, all right, dad, I said, I'm, I'm really love shooting my bow, but I'm, I'm ready to, to archery hunt. I want, I want to go archery hunting. And he said, well, bud, you know, it's, it's June. Uh, we're in Pennsylvania. You know, the main seasons season really doesn't open up until, uh, October 1st for deer. And he kind of got a smirk on his face and he said, well, said you could try to go hunt some groundhogs, uh, or some woodchucks here in Pennsylvania. He said, it's going to be really tough. They're, they're tough to kill with a rifle, let alone with a bow, but you could try. So I was gung ho about it. And, uh, he said, Hey, there's a, a big dairy farmer just down the road that I get, uh, milk from, uh, why don't we go and stop and talk to him and see if we can, can, um, get you permission to, to groundhog hunt for him. Uh, for those that don't know, maybe listening groundhogs in particular for farmers are a nightmare, not only because of crop damage, but because of the holes and burrows they dig on, um, in the fields, on hillsides, underneath buildings. Uh, it's, problem for for livestock problem for machinery so they essentially want them gone farmers want them gone so well how big is uh is the the groundhogs you're talking about so like, yeah people use that term pretty loosely i think mm -hmm. and apply it to most ground dwelling little <laughs> yeah. creatures right so are you talking sure. like the groundhog that comes out to see his shadow kind of ground yeah big guys yeah okay. yeah yeah so they're big they're bigger um the differentiation there is on this kind of eastern side of the country, we have groundhogs, woodchucks, uh, whistle pigs, ground grizzlies, lots of different names for them. They are a little bit bigger. They're any, they range from anywhere, maybe five to eight pounds on average. They get up Goodness. to, I think, about, about 10 to 12 pounds. So they get pretty big. You know, um, they, uh, the comparison that popped into my brain is a good size one is probably twice the size of a normal loaf of bread. Um, uh, prairie dogs are what sometimes people think of out West or in the Midwest sure. and they're, they're, they're smaller. So these are uh, pretty good sized rodents. Uh, they're part of the squirrel family actually. And, <laughs> um, yeah, so these, these are the, the groundhogs that I'm hunting. And, uh, this particular farm that I got permission from was owned it, or is owned by a gentleman named Mr. Croft or Glenn Croft. And, his farm's really unique. It's about 400 acres smack dab in one of the fastest growing suburbs in the country. Um, this, this gentleman, all he wants to do is farm. He's now 83 years old. Um, he has no interest in selling. He gets offers all the time. Uh, but he just, 
he loves farming. He loves his grounds uh, and just a really, really admirable guy. Someone that I've, I've uh, been able to establish a friendship with, get to know, help him around the farm, and of course, uh, get rid of groundhogs for him. So I've been hunting at this farm, uh, Mr. Croft's farm, for probably probably four or five years now, I would say. And as I've spent time on the farm, you know, hunting, helping him, helping him around the farm, just become a, a really special place for me. And uh, a couple years ago, he, him and his brother were running the farm. A couple years ago, in a freak accident, a tree branch fell and killed his brother. Uh, he was in his late late 70s. So it leaves uh, Glenn Croft by himself uh, with a little bit, some other helping hands, but pretty much by himself to run this farm. And he keeps running it. About a year and a half ago, he all of a sudden drops to the ground from a heart attack and has to undergo a quadruple bypass heart surgery at the age of 81 years old. And he gets back to the farm after that, that incident. And he says, okay, I think it's time to get rid of the dairy cows because I can't keep up with the milking schedule, but I'm going to keep farming for, for beef cows, for, for, for beef cattle. And he's still running his farm. Um, and, like I said, he's just that actually, actually that quadruple bypass incident was the longest he had been away from the farm since he uh, was a teenager. He had never left the farm for a night. Uh, and he was in the hospital for a handful of nights uh, with that incident. What? But yeah, he's never gone on yeah, vacation. He, he's never gone any, like never he, traveled. Nothing. He, he never went on vacation. He's, he d- doesn't go to weddings. He doesn't go to funerals because he had that really strict schedule with, sure. um, with the dairy cows. So uh, kind of all this leading to the, the topic of how Croft got his name. Uh, Mr. Croft does not have any, he's not married. He does not have any kids. His brother has passed away, like I had said. And, uh, there's really, really no one around, uh, that's necessarily going to carry on the legacy, at least of his name. So, uh, I just, it meant a lot to me and I thought it was cool. And I love telling this story cause it's one of my favorite stories. And he's, he's someone that I admire, uh, tremendously. They just, they don't make, make guys like Mr. Croft, uh, much anymore. So, uh, I gave him, gave my, my short hair pointer the name of Croft. And, uh, I, I went down and did some groundhog hunting at Mr. Croft's farm a couple weeks ago and showed him a picture of, of my dog. And, uh, he burst out into a big, big smile and a little chuckle and, uh, I could tell tell he enjoyed it. So um, that's a story to to honor Mr. Croft of Southwest PA. I like it. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have any stories like that for pretty much <laughs> any of the dogs that I think I've ever named. Uh, they mm. end up being pretty... Uh, it sounded good enough at the time kind of deal, sure. you know? But sure, yeah, That's a really yeah, that cool story. Just, that was just the route I wanted to go. I wanted it to be something something meaningful. And we actually, we came to find out, which this will tie into our conversation here in a bit. Uh, we came to find out that Croft means a small piece of farmland. And here we have just, uh, an acre and a half here in central Pennsylvania, but, uh, we have chickens and kind of a little, little bit of a farm here with a garden and, uh, kind of works out well, little, little piece of farmland and, uh, means Croft and Croft is our dog. So it's cool. That's awesome. So how old yeah. is Croft now? I believe he's seven or eight months. 
Seven right around, months. right around there. Yeah. So now did you, uh, did you rescue him or did you get him from a breeder? Yeah, we got him from a breeder here in, uh, central Pennsylvania in, okay. uh, the area, the area is called Houtsdale. Uh, and it was a breeder about a half hour away from our house. It's called so, house. What, what's well, the, the breeder's name? Yeah. The area is Houtsdale. The breeder's Houtsdale. name is warriors. Mark wing shooting. Warriors Mark Wing Shooting. And they've got a really nice, uh, really nice property down there uh, where they, they do some different training. Uh, they do some breeding. And uh, we, we kind of just lucked out. We did a little bit of research when we decided mm-hmm. we were ready to pull the trigger on a dog. And uh, just a half hour from our house, we were able to go down, see the litter, meet the mother, uh, meet the, the father uh, of that litter of puppies. And got to pick out our guy. So that's cool. really cool. You've got some um, interesting field trial stuff behind um, Rising Sun Blood. All right, so that's in there. I would need to see further. I've got like uh, Bur Oak dogs. Um, those are field trial, and then this dog's also out of a master hunter at south pines i don't know if you're familiar with any of the testing i'm not no um so you've got a couple different things in there the field trial champion stuff you've got nfc and then fc afc so you've got a field trial champion amateur field trial champion just titles that were based off of handlers basically and then Mm -hmm. also you got a dog in there that has a master hunter title so now when we specifically uh, work with our dogs, we do testing, titling kind of to develop. And it's not so much about, you know, it doesn't require testing and titling to make a, a quality bird dog or to make a, a well-bred dog or to make any of these things, right? So, mm-hmm. um, but what they do is, in our eyes anyhow, is give validity on a paper, right? So sure. it's a big part of why we do them, but then we pick the specific tests that are closest geared to what we're trying to produce with our dogs. Um, mm-hmm. Foot hunt, family-oriented foot hunting, versatile companions. So um, we run NAVDA tests, which is the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association. And there's quite a bit of that in your area to mm. east of you all the way to Ohio. Um, uh-huh. And then as far like that northeast band that that finishes in minnesota because minnesota is central but if you take okay. that swath through there you can run into you basically throw a stone in any direction hit a navda chapter so that may be mm-hmm. something that if you're looking for an extra hobby there with croft that you could look yeah. into um that uh it, it tests versatility so they have a poppy test that he would be eligible for for the next approximately eight months um, mm. 16 months is the cutoff okay and they have to swim for a bumper so it's mm-hmm. it's judging swimming though not retrieving desire so if he just swims out there and leaves it that's okay mm-hmm. um they're looking will he swim willingly and then uh, there's a pointing section so walks through the field he's got to point birds that's part of uh mm-hmm. what you're probably using him for a little bit and yeah. then yeah um there's also a tracking portion and the tracking would be they let a pheasant go and he has to kind of follow and show an ability to advance on scent and show enough focus to be able to stay with that. Now, mm. 
it's a pretty interesting test and there's kind of a lot that goes on there for a young dog, but still dogs with natural ability and some level of exposure do pretty well. Yeah. The other side of it that we run is hunt tests. Um, AKC hunt tests are going to be, that's where that master hunter title comes in. You've got three levels, junior, senior, and master. Um, you can work up through the ranks or you can jump to any level you want to. And each with each qualified title, you actually gain um, one less pass. So as a junior hunter, you have to get four passes. So you have to attend four events, get four passes. Um, then as a senior hunter, you have to get five passes. Unless you're a junior hunter, then you only need four passes. And then the same with master. If you're a senior hunter, you only need five instead of six. Mm-hmm. So we typically take our dogs um, straight to the master level. And it's, there's a number of different reasons why, but the biggest one being dogs become fairly test smart. It doesn't have anything to do with the fact, oh, I'm so good. I'm, I'm too good for the other right. levels. The dogs, that the longer they spend time in a testing environment, the more opportunities they have to learn. I can get away with anything here because all of those tests uh, require no usage of an e-collar. So... Mm-hmm you got to have a dog that listens pretty well and handles pretty well and, and works through those things. So I just was right. curious being a short hair guy, wanted to look at genetics. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So what have you been working on thus far? The, the prime, our primary time has been spent with uh, getting him out in the woods and, and hiking and uh, just exposing him really to as much as uh, we possibly can. Uh, we haven't done a whole lot. Uh, with him as far as training yet, uh, mostly just due to, to time and priorities. Um, but as we get into our summers tend to be a time where we've got more time because my wife's off work. Um, we're looking to dive into some stuff here, but yeah, up until this point, it's, it's just been letting him go, uh, spending time with him, uh, whether it's around the property here or out on, uh, we've got a lot of game lands near us. So Yesterday we actually got him out. Uh, we took a hike and uh, he he pointed nicely uh, on a grouse and uh, flushed a grouse, which was cool. Um, but yeah, I'm like I said, I'm I'm excited and looking forward to getting him into more stuff, especially as the fall rolls around for uh, pheasant season and grouse season. You guys have a decent number of pheasants there, or no? Is- all right. Did you do like a state release? Is that what yeah. happens? Or? Yeah. Unfortunately, we used to have a lot of pheasants here. You know, I, I hear stories and talk to my dad a lot. Um, back 40, 50 years ago, there were a lot of wild pheasants. Now, I believe there are zero uh, wild pheasants from loss of habitat, which really stinks. Uh, so it is the pheasant hunting is uh, like a stocking, stocking type of deal, which I personally, uh, it, it doesn't fire me up very much from a hunting perspective, but I do it, do see it as valuable for, uh, getting him on some birds. The, the sure. big thing, the big thing that I'm looking forward to doing is on like the Northern half of the state, or at least in some parts of, of Northern Pennsylvania, there's a decent, decent population of grouse and woodcock. Um, and my dad is, is keen on, uh, hunting up there and hunting them. So that's what I'm looking forward to doing the most. So how does the actual state release program work? I've always, I've kind of heard that, but I mean, what is happening? Yeah. So here in Pennsylvania and I have, uh, 
a pretty surface level understanding, so I'll do my best. Sure. Uh, but here, here in Pennsylvania, uh, to hunt pheasants, you buy, I think they call it a pheasant stamp, uh, okay. something, something of that something of that nature for 25 bucks or so, which uh, enables you to hunt pheasants. And there's a season that roughly, there's some breaks in there, but roughly is like mid-October to the last day of February. And we have a lot of public hunting land, a lot of game lands here in Pennsylvania, which is great. Very thankful for that. And we have a lot of them around our house here in central Pennsylvania. And they, on these game lands, recently, I think more so, they have done a lot of habitat work, um, not necessarily to establish a population of pheasants. I, I don't know that that's feasible or possible, but it's it's in an effort to provide cover for them to release the pheasants into, and then individuals sure. can go hunt. So there's a stocking schedule where they will go to all these different game lands throughout the state, and they will release a certain number, number of birds, males and females, and then um, that's where you can then go go hunt them. And there, I th- I think they may post the stocking schedule um, in some capacity, or at least at a bare minimum. I know that they they uh, inform the public on how many birds they're they're releasing, that sort of thing. Sure, absolutely. So, yeah. So, because um, I just curious, I've heard several folks talk about that and they go hunt the, you know, the public land or game lands as you referred to them. Um, yeah. and be able to shoot these statewide stocked birds. And there's some misconceptions mm-hmm. in other States. So we hunt South Dakota, which is like premier, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, you've probably heard about quality pheasant hunting in the state of South Dakota. There's a few different states that, depending on the year, rival pretty hard with that, which Iowa mm-hmm. has uh, made a huge comeback not too many years ago. I think that they were, I mean, within striking distance of harvesting more pheasants than the state of Kansas, wow. uh, than the state of South Dakota. And um, Nebraska is good in areas. And then Kansas can be kind of a, a, well, probably was more like you're talking about a long time ago, but even going on probably 14 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, it was really good in Kansas where there were a lot of areas that it was nothing to go out and shoot a four, five, six man limit, mm-hmm. um, which is four birds, a man versus mm-hmm. three, where it is most of the other states. And then I'm guessing Pennsylvania is probably two or one. I'd have to look. Uh, yeah, it, sure. It's one, it's one, it's one or two. It's, uh, it's yeah. not more than that. So, um, that being said, you said rough grouse, yeah. rough grouse, um, mm-hmm. and then woodcock. Do you guys get a pretty good woodcock flight out there, or? Um, as far as my area, I'm not sure. Um, I do flush them, and I do come across them semi regularly. Sure. Uh, I I'm not the the person to to give an idea on that. Um, grouse population is is iffy, from my understanding. Um, Habitat, uh, loss of habitat and just poor habitats been very difficult on the population. And then, um, from what I've read and, and researched, uh, there's, I think it's called the West Nile virus, um, mm-hmm. has, has been difficult on them as well. So again, I hear, uh, stories and talking to different people, talking with my dad, you know, about his experiences and, um, not a huge population of grouse, but they are, they are present. 
Uh, I think it's, you got to hunt pretty hard, hard for them. Um, and you know, hunt even harder to kill one. Um, but, <laughs> that's everywhere though. I mean, even yeah, in sure. the highly populated sure. areas, that's the, uh, grouse hunters basic quality day off of a flush count most of yeah. the time. Right. You know, it's yeah. not so much about harvesting. Sure. Um, but sure. what, you know, what are your overall goals then with Croft? You plan on upland hunting or is he more just an adventure dog for you? I mean, what are, what are your goals? Can we get you out here to bird hunt with us or? <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that versatility is going to be the, the big thing with him. Um, my, my wife is, has a growing interest in, uh, particularly bird hunting because of him, uh, which is cool. cool. She just, she's always gone with me hunting. Uh, but this year she said, Hey, I think I really want to try it. So I got her out for Turkey season. We're able to get her to kill a gobbler, which is awesome. That got her excited. And, and the idea of hunting behind Croft, um, I think has her even more excited to do some upland hunting. So with that being said, and answer your question, uh, without a doubt, we'll do some bird hunt with bird hunting with him, particularly upland. Uh, I really like to do just a lot of hiking, just not only for the exercise, but also just exploration. So I really enjoy taking him there or, or taking him on those adventures. Uh, shed hunting. Uh, I'm going to continue to work with him on that. We've gotten him started a little bit there. Uh, he found, I think he found two sheds this year, which is cool. And then I, even if I have the time, um, I'm even interested in dabbling in, um, potentially getting him to blood track for archery hunting, cool. uh, with is his that, nose. That's what I was going to ask you about is the, the legal situation of that in the state yeah. of Pennsylvania. Yeah, I think it's recent, uh, but they, like I said, I think it's recent, but they just, uh, legalized that you can use a uh, blood tracking dog here in Pennsylvania, which is awesome. Um, my, my dad jokes with me all the time. He says, Hey, you better, you better fill your archery tags early so that you can go bird hunting with Croft. And, um, you know, with, with him, I love, love spending time with him as I know, you know, most people listening and you, you do as well. Enjoy spending time with your dogs, love seeing him work. So I have a feeling that as we get farther down the road and we start to get more experience and exposure, uh, bird hunting with him, that that's going to start to become a bigger priority. But with my passion for archery hunting and then also, you know, it being tied to my business, a lot of my fall time does go into archery hunting. And I, I know that there will be times where I'll, I'll definitely be choosing archery hunting over bird hunting. But like I said, I, I foresee that, becoming more even potentially or some time shifting more into, into bird hunting with him. So, uh, it's kind of up in the air, but the big thing is, is just versatility with him. You know, we, we want him as a great family dog for in the future. Uh, when we have kids, the, the hiking, the potential uses for, for deer hunting, uh, and, and kind of just everything wrapped into one. So I, I will say that at this point, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a diehard, uh, bird hunter, but uh, things, things evolve, things uh, adapt. So I'm excited for what's to come with them. hundred percent. So we actually have a dog that does blood trail deer. I, mm -hmm. I put a huge, here's the things that people run into and some kind of misconceptions that happen, right? So mm -hmm. if I teach my dog to blood trail deer, they're going to also run deer from an upland standpoint. That mm -hmm. is not the case, but mm -hmm. is at the same time. 
Okay, so the dogs that take most naturally to that versatile aspect of games or that versatile aspect from a fur and feather side of things um, mm-hmm. typically have, we describe it a lot of times as having more fur drive, okay? Yeah. And they like that. So the fact that they're good at blood trailing um, means that you most likely are going to also fight them chasing to try and kill raccoons or mm. chasing deer or skunks or I- any of the name it it's it's on the list other mm. vermin okay so sure we um i don't put any emphasis because bird dogs are a huge part of what we do we guide we do all these things and i don't want to fight dogs on that right. um we don't put a lot of emphasis in it from a breeding standpoint it's not something mm. that we look at and in fact if i have a dog that kind of leans more that direction, most likely they're going to get, they're going to fall into an area of getting cut for one reason or another. But um, when the dogs pass that prime category for developing them for the program, that would be um, titled and finished. And we're not doing anything else with them other than hunting and that side of things. I have taken a, a couple of them and said, all right, let's teach you something new now. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know, you're five or you're six and you're a utility prize dog and you're a master hunter and you've done all these other things. Let's, let's try something new to continue to challenge your mind and help you to grow. Um, so with the, the deer tracking, um, blood trailing, whatever you want to call it, game recovery, we have, uh, worked specifically with Jeremy Moore, um, mm-hmm. He's the creator of a company called Dogbone. Uh, okay. Have you heard of that specifically? I have not. Mm-mm. Okay. So they make a handful of different products that are very, very, very beneficial. First and foremost, with your um, shed work, they created a rubber antler. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. the huge benefits of that is it's drastically safer to build drive around because mm-hmm. it's rubber, but mm-hmm. it has the look. And what he explained to me is, a majority of what dogs utilize to find sheds is their eyes because there mm-hmm. is a pretty small amount of scent truly yeah. there. Right. And then he also created a scent so that you can mimic what a real shed smells mm. like um, that's built off of the wax ring. So the wax ring being, uh, for anybody that's listening that doesn't know, the remaining portion when the antler drops off, basically there's a small amount of skin and hair and blood and different things that stay on a fresh dropped shed. So they use parts of that to create the scent. Now you can open a bottle and smell it and there's like nothing there. I mean, almost nothing. Right. Yeah. And, um, but you can apply that, you can use that for training and then you do work into the utilization of just real antlers or hard bone that you've got to kind of wash them, keep them clean from smelling like people, but then mm-hmm. um, you can apply it. So those are two things that if you, you truly yeah, want to pursue that's that, really that would, interesting. I would recommend. And now mm-hmm. the other side of it is he has a full game recovery system that involves um, chunks of hide that they have mm-hmm. a process. And I, I did not understand how involved this process is, but they actually scrape and dry and, um, and he has a, a recommendation. He he explains how the scent is built based off of bacteria. Mm. So you have to actually um, keep them frozen. They're dried. Then you re-wet them before you utilize them. And 
then you have to fold them up and then freeze them again. And it's a process and you can use mm. the same height a lot, but you want kind of two for your process and one, I call it the slobber hide. That's the one that gets left there as the toy to carry around and play tug with and fetch with, sure. and, you know, make it exciting. Um, the other being the drag hide that mm-hmm. then again, he has a, um, I think he calls it blood, blood trail or something that applies um, lots of different parts of the tracking experience yeah. in one scent. Okay. So the way dogs noses specifically work is they basically smell in individual scent streams, right? So though we can pick up a few things, the best example that I've got would be like chili. Okay. You walk into the house, you smell chili. Chili. Mm-hmm. Okay. You can probably pick out, oh, I, I could smell a little bit of the garlic or I can smell a little bit of the this or that. But ultimately, right. you smell chili. The yeah. dog smells each individual ingredient. And that's Interesting. how their nose and brain works. It's almost more like an, an analog type of situation where it's huh. each strain. Interesting. So with the scent, he said, everybody has different um, opinions on how to teach the dog, right? So they they train off of glands the, mm-hmm. the glands are when the deer stressed that they secrete more and that's what you follow or um, hides and a lot of people say don't drag hides because that's a bad thing um, and then there's just blood and then there's what else is there well when a deer is stressed they they slough skin cells okay so when you watch in slow motion a deer get hit with an arrow or a gun or whatever it is if you have the right light and the right camera on it, you'll see their whole body goes, when they jump to move, it goes, hmm. and there's this like dust cloud around them. Interesting. And that's dust and hair and skin cells and all of those things follow with that. So yeah. there are glands and blood and adrenaline and mm-hmm. all kinds of things that dogs pick up on. And he's pulled uh, as many of those as is possible into one scent again, yeah. because if they're all there during training, when you only have one, the dog's still able to follow that. That's right. the idea behind it. So that makes sense. Um, these are it's something. That's how I trained my dog, who has uh, probably twenty-ish recoveries now. Awesome. And awesome. Um, most of them, most of them, I, I don't want to tote him too too hard, but. Most of them have been like known kills, right? I that sure. was a good shot. I know it's dead somewhere over there, but he follows them almost so fast that it's hard to keep up with. Oh and yeah, huh. like pulling you through where different breeds, um, you know, track at different rates and do different operate differently. Short hairs yeah. are pretty upbeat, pretty fast, pretty athletic creatures. So the biggest thing that I found as a struggle was slowing him down enough. Mm-hmm. to um, essentially to double check what he's doing, right? You, when I take him, I have somebody else follow me. I'm like, hey, just follow where I'm going and see if you can pick up blood. See if mm-hmm. you can pick up any sign that we are on the right track. And by the time, <laughs> you know, by the time I hear, I've got blood, we've got the deer. You know, yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's done. So, right. um, and one specifically this, uh, I call him streak breaker, okay? So my... Uh, my archery, uh, 
thing, whatever, my path through archery and deer hunting has been pretty bad, all right? I started this game when I was still riding a bicycle, and mm-hmm. I lived in Iowa, south uh, southwest Iowa, and I would ride my bike to a walk-in hunting property with my bow, and I'm in camo. I would go out there like, I have no idea. What am I going to do if I actually shoot a deer, right? I, right. I'm going to load it on the bike and go home? Probably not. Right. But um, hadn't thought that far ahead because I was a little kid. Um, but I spent years and years before I actually killed anything. And then there was a gap in the middle where I was busy and but started with really crappy equipment. Um, got out of college and had a little bit of money. So I bought better equipment and mm-hmm. started killing some deer, but primarily shot does. And then- yeah. I was like, I've got this, um, set the bar way too high. Like I want to, I want to shoot a mature buck. That was it. It's not, it doesn't have to be some amazing trophy, but I want to shoot a mature buck, whether that's an old bruiser that is broken up and whatever, but he's past his prime or something. I want to shoot, you know, the, the mature deer, right? Well, I shot so few and took so few attempts to kill bucks that then when the time arise, you get a little buck fever, you make a mistake or you miss Mm -hmm. or you, you do something. And, and I went years without harvesting a buck. Mm -hmm. And then I got on this lease here locally. We have good deer in Kansas and we got on this, uh, it's about 30 miles from here. It was 900 acres, about 160 of it were actually huntable. The rest was just pasture ground or wide open crop fields, which you can kind of hunt, but right. you can't archery hunt those well. Right, right. And um, did all of the things. We've got food plots in, we've got feeders out. I put work in all summer, patterning mm-hmm. stuff and doing all of, all the things. In the first year, I didn't get an opportunity. Mm-hmm. I saw a couple deer and figured out better. And saw, I got lots of pictures of deer, never saw one of them on hoof. And right. uh, then year two, I had it figured out. We made adjustments, we moved. And the first week that I hunted in September, this monster came out. And I'm talking, I don't know how to guess, but I would be surprised if he didn't touch the like 170 category, wow. which is That's big, awesome. Right? Oh, it's huge, huge. And I screwed it up. I put a, a bad shot. I hit him high in the shoulder and it killed me, you know? And it's yeah. like those ethical aspects of things where you go, well, I can't shoot at any other box. That's my buck. I, I hit him and he's injured and he's whatever. And you, you paint all these pictures in your head about what's right and what's right. the right thing to do. Well, 30 days later, he shows up on camera. No kidding. Yeah. So hit him poor enough penetration. Now, granted, does he get sick and have an infection later? Did he, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, but he was alive 30 days later. Wow. And, that's a good sign. And, and running a trail, right? Nose mm-hmm. down, caught him on this trail cam, rolling through stuff. He was working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yep. um, then I shoot this buck that is, oh, I think it's a little seven point, you know, about like this big. Mm-hmm. And so I named him street breaker. So first buck that I've ever killed one, but bow, <laughs> and it, I mean, took me nearly 12 years to, to yeah. do that. So, yeah. um, it was just one of those deals that I was like the, the next thing with antlers that walks through, he's going to die. And that's, right. that's how I'm going to do this. And, uh, he ran off and I was like, that was a good shot. And 
didn't find blood, didn't find blood, didn't find blood. And then where I hunted was on the edge of this. It's like cedars. And are you familiar with Russian olive trees? Uh-uh. You ever heard of that? Look, look them up. They are bad. Okay. <laughs> They've got thorns that are like three, oh, four inches yeah. long. They're kind of a scrubby hardwood tree that gets, I mean, builds a pretty decent canopy. They utilize them a lot and probably utilize them drastically more before they knew how invasive they kind of are as yeah. a, as a plant, but mm-hmm. they put them in South Dakota in shelter belts. So shelter belts are like linear cover tree rows designed for natural snow breaks and wind breaks. And um, mm. so they put these Russian olive trees in the middle because they're open underneath, but they provide good aerial cover to prevent hawks and different right. predators from being able to see. So right. that's what this, I'm hunting on the edge of this. That's just basically a straight wall. You can't hardly walk through it, mm. but it's where the deer are. So that's where you got to hunt and yeah. just hope one doesn't run too far into it. Well, I get down and I'm looking and, I'm pretty good at tracking deer that are hit and whatever. Can't find anything. I'm like, well, I'll bring, uh, Nick's out and we'll see. And I, I mean, there was 60 yards maybe away. It was not far, but it had tucked up into this collective of three or four cedar trees together. Mm-hmm. So without him, it would have taken me a very long time to find because yeah. even looking around after the fact, I didn't ever find a good amount of blood anywhere. Yeah, like it's right. Hidden. It was hidden. Yeah. yeah. So, um, it's definitely a cool thing. It's yeah. definitely a cool thing. And if you are interested in that stuff, let me know. We've got um, standingstonesupply.com. We created an online supply store that carries all of the things that we use and recommend. So, we've got those. And if you get into saying you want to work toward that, let me know and I can help. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate help that. With that. Yeah. Now, the the main point that you had a question about specifically was chickens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So, uh, my wife and I are enjoying the endeavor of trying to be as self-sufficient as possible. Cool. Um, I get, I get a lot of deer tags each year. I love, love hunting and harvesting does, uh, pretty much exclusively with my bow, but I'm probably going to hunt with a rifle too, to fill an extra one this year. Uh, but between deer hunting, uh, you know, vegetable garden, uh, and we have chickens too. We've got a rooster and six hens, um, and we've got a, a coop. Actually, it's right behind me right now on this uh, opposite side of the barn. A coop, you know, that they they roost in, go in, go in and out of. And we got them shortly after we moved uh, to our home here. We've been almost we've been here almost two years. So we had these chickens, we've had them for over a year and I wanted to hold off on getting a dog, uh, particularly a bird dog because we had moved, we had just gotten married. My wife's in a new job, just a lot going on. Didn't want to add a dog to it, but, uh, I guess it must've been during the, the winter blues, uh, like December, January time here in Pennsylvania. I said to my wife, I said, Hey, I think, I think I'm ready. I think we should, we should get, get a bird dog. So she was on top of it. That's where we did our research. We went and looked, I think the next week and had put a deposit down and everything. So, cool. uh, we've got these chickens, uh, new, new bird dog here at, at the house. And, um, to, to put it short, to keep it simple, it's, it's been a challenge to have them on the property and Croft sure. on the property as well. 
Um, in an effort to try to mitigate some of this, I built uh, what some people, or I guess the founder of it, uh, calls a, they call it a chicken tractor. It's basically a mobile chicken yep. coop on wheels that I built. Um, I think I got to give credit. I think the guy's name is Joel Salatin. Um, but I built that. That way I could usher the chickens out of the coop into this chicken tractor, move it wherever I want on the property. And then that way they're enclosed. Well, uh, there are some days where I just can't use it. There's some days where I just don't have the time to mess with it. Uh, so primarily our chickens free range and we want the chickens mm-hmm. to free range, uh, so that they can forage and, uh, eat natural food sources. I do not want to close cl- and close them in. I, I just don't want to do that for the reason of them not being able to forage. So got free well, range. It's drastically healthier. Otherwise you're yeah. essentially eating the same chicken than eggs yeah. that you had at the store. I mean, there's no difference. To, yeah. To me, I, yeah, there, there's really no point in having them if I'm going to pen them in. So yeah. I want them to be able to free range. I want to have my dog. I want to not have to battle this thing back and forth. Uh, so that's where I reached out to you, um, and said, Hey, you know, I understand. And I, completely acknowledge that he's a bird dog. This is his instinct. And I'm unsure of how I go about uh, getting him to leave them alone at least a little bit uh, or to see if that's even possible. Is that even something that, you know, I can, can uh, work with his instincts? You know, is the instinct too strong? I don't want to discipline him for something that he was bred and uh, created to do. Right. So, um, I, I will give you the microphone here in a second, but I will say that uh, since we talked, since I asked you that maybe a couple weeks ago, he's been he's been been a little bit better. Uh, he listens better if I call call them uh, off, call him off of the chickens. You know, if he sure. starts to to get too fired up with them, uh, we haven't had any major issues. He mostly he mostly just likes to kind of roll them. You know, he'll kind of he'll kind of go after him, not with his mouth, but he'll go after him with his body and kind of roll over top of him. And, uh, he did pin one or two and kind of start to mouth them a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, but nothing major. I just, I'm, you know, I'm shooting my bow or I'm working out here in the barn I'm in and I just hear the rooster all of a sudden just start going nuts. So I'm yelling Croft, you know, I just, I know what's going on. And, um, that's where I reached out to you and wanted to see, Hey, What's the deal? Is there a fix? Is it something I'll battle forever? What's that look like? So, uh, so it's an interesting question, and it's uh, one that a lot of people have, which is why I, I tried to hold you off a little bit so that we could have a conversation yeah. here. But the is super common. I think it, people that fall into the category of hunting and and outdoors people like the self-sustainability idea of stuff as much as you can and have chickens. I mean, it's an easy thing to have around. Um, They produce a ton of eggs during the season and Mm -hmm. um, the eggs are drastically better, drastically better. So um, there's a couple of things. First and foremost, it's very, 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 very normal. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. They're going to find something to hunt. And, yeah. <laughs> and chickens are are readily available in their environment at this point, right? Right. Um, right. I have seen uh, one dog that was like the chicken garter. And he would just go lay. It was short hair. Just go lay down and hang out <laughs> with the chickens. And um, he's, he's there. He's watching out. He, he goes sit next to the chickens, lick the chickens. You know, he was really good. And a, a great <laughs> bird dog as well. But, Too funny. 
not normal, right? Yeah. It's it's yeah. not a normal thing. They're not bred like to be herding. They're not bred to be protective, really. Uh, yeah. Short hairs in general, they're bird dogs. So sure. um, this is where typically we recommend more of a corrective style of handling. Mm-hmm. It just comes down to, I don't know, have you done any um, e-collar work or collar conditioning work with Croft at all? I just started to. Okay. So that is going to be my recommendation. Once you have a strong understanding of things like basic recall, and we recommend utilizing collar conditioning for place training and mm-hmm. basically everything you can collar condition, but those would be the two big ones. So the when you break that down, you've got teaching the dog to go away from you with the collar and then teaching the dog to come to you with the collar. Now, mm-hmm. Uh, the order in which we teach those varies based on breeds. So if we're working with retrievers or uh, flushing dogs or any primarily retriever-based category, um, those dogs are primarily dependent, okay, or more dependent. They rely on you for direction. They rely, they're they're typically known as more cooperative. They stick with you tighter, um, mm-hmm. where short hairs and other versatile breeds are independent dogs. They're designed to go out there and hunt things, even though they're doing it cooperatively and there is different levels of that, they are still supposed to be out there doing it, right? And if they aren't out there doing it, they're not doing their job. So um, we typically teach short hairs or versatile dogs to come to us first and then go away from a second um, with the collar. Once you have a strong understanding of that, utilizing the collar for Corrective action in some cases is a good option. Um, We are more about conditioning and developing and teaching things than than preventing things, than correcting it. But in your situation, there's truly no prevention aside from what you've already explained. Really not what you want to do, which is just Mm -hmm. pinning the chickens up someplace else where they're kept away from everything. Or Mm -hmm. the opposite being pinning him up someplace else, which is also not ideal, right? Right. Um, so aside from keeping them completely separate, you need to teach him that chickens are a no-go. I mean, that's the answer. And when we work through that, and this is what I mean, having a strong understanding of collar conditioning, you need to know what level he typically responds to and mm-hmm. what is reasonable. And he has a full understanding because if you start doing corrective type training before he has a full understanding, you can create issues where he doesn't respond well at all to the collar and you create collar sensitivity or collar shyness where Mm -hmm. basically if you put the collar on him, he cowers in the corner. That's not what we want. So you need to have a full understanding and I'd be happy to do, you know, like a a specific video with you on that where we can just, I mean, FaceTime or we do Mm -hmm. video chat like this, but we look at the understanding, give you some pointers, tips that way. But once he has a full understanding, basically when he goes to the chickens, you allow the chickens to talk, which is he goes to them, the collar shuts him down. And you're going to find a level that's higher than what he would normally respond to. Not all the way up, just higher than what he normally responds to. And you would apply collar stimulus until he says, I should leave the chickens alone. And then you watch him and you do it again. And it's going to take... The problem with breaking training or correction-based training is it's not a a 100% thing. And when that wears off depends on the individual dog and their personality. So we see it a lot. And the only true way to work through 
the number one way that I recommend people utilize this type of training is uh, snake uh, avoidance training. And that's prevalent in our area and then down south. Okay. So you've got rattlesnakes and they do the three S's, which is fitting, right? All right. So you've got um, sight, scent, and, um, and sound. Yeah. And they correct the dog when they see the snake and it strikes at them. They defang them. Sometimes they use bull snakes, so it's safer, but um, they um, correct the dog like I'm talking about, a higher level. And when the, the snake strikes at them, then when they smell the snake, and then just when they're on the upwind side, but the snake rattles. So they try mm-hmm. and combine all three of those to teach that process. Now, you don't have to go to that extent with the chickens. Like it's, it's pretty much just a, a sight thing at this point. And, um, but some dogs only need one session of that in their life and they'll never look at another snake. The next uh-huh. dog is going to need refreshed on that annually or semi-annually or weekly um, yeah. because they get a little bored and they go, well, the chickens look like they could be fun today. Let's try. Yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> the key is going to be while you're in this stage of exploring the environment and excited to do puppy things, that's when you're going to have to stay on top of it. So approximately for the next six to six months to a year, you need to be very consistent about when he's out in the yard that he gets corrected for messing with the chickens. Mm-hmm. And timely is going to be important, but even if you're a little slow on your timing, you yeah. know, because you do go to the barn and you hear him out there messing with the chickens, you're, you can still correct him for that because he knows he's not supposed to at this point, but he thinks maybe it might be a good idea today. <laughs> you need to just correct him. That's it. And gotcha. with enough consistency at a high enough level that is a deterrent. And that's where you're going to have to, it's going to be a range for him. So let's say your collar goes to 10 levels or whatever. Yeah, Normally does. responds on a two. Okay. Well, you go to the four for the first correction of the chickens. Well, chickens are exciting. That may not be enough. So then you go to a six. Don't go up one click at a time. What can happen with that anytime you are working with e-collar and you're moving through levels? If you go up one click at a time, it's too gradual of a change mm. and you're at actually end up at a higher level than what you would have making a slightly uh, larger jump. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I refer to it as cooking the dog and that comes from apparently, and I haven't done this, but apparently if you take a frog and you put it in pond temperature water and you boil it, it will stay there because the water temperature changes gradually enough. Yeah. Cook to death. Okay. But if you take the same frog, put it in boiling water, it'll try and jump out because that makes too big of a change. So don't cook your dog. Just Mm -hmm. make those jumps, um, you know, two to three levels at a time. Our collars have 16 levels. Some collars have like 100 levels. So you're going to make um, jumps in 10 to 20 increments, not one, twos, threes. And, yeah. um, but find that level that he responds to. It's going to be pretty consistent after a while. If it's, again, if he's responding normally on a two and he stops with the chickens on a five, but then the next day he goes back out there or the next week he goes back out there, you may have to go up a couple more clicks and it'd be a little more like, hey, to begin with, I said, stop that. And now I'm saying, don't do it anymore. You know, like mm-hmm. we um, use the lowest amount of pressure necessary for any given training situation. And we allow him to set that with 
how often are you going to test this? Mm -hmm. So that's it. That makes sense. Yep. That makes sense. And I, you know, on a surface level, one of my biggest questions was, is it okay? Or question slash fear is, is it okay to use the e-collar to get him to come off those, those chickens to teach him not to, to teach the, uh, him not to mess with them. Uh, where my fear was, is that going to create a generalization for him where he's like, Oh, um, that's a bird at home. I can't mess with the chickens. There's a pheasant. I can't mess with that, you know, out in the field. I didn't know if there were, he would be able to make that differentiation, um, yeah. and what that would look like. Two big things with that. So one is, um, chickens are 100% different than any game bird. So hmm. interesting. There is no true correlation to that. It's just like people um, talk about often when you get a young puppy, you're like, oh, I saw a point today. It was out pointing songbirds and it was out yeah. pointing uh, squirrels and it was out pointing this, that, and another thing. I, I saw all this pointing. Okay. Well, all of that sight pointing related has nothing to do with the fact that it's a bird, just has something to do with the fact that it's a creature of some yeah. sort. So hmm. um, we don't hunt chickens, mm-hmm. nor do we hunt red-breasted robins or red-winged blackbirds, right? So right. we don't want to put any emphasis on those as being important in life. And mm. learning the difference is no issue as long as he has a full understanding of mm. collar conditioning. So the only thing that you run the risk of is creating a collar sensitivity mm-hmm. or a collar shyness. So as long as he has a full understanding of the collar, you will not create a problem that way. And then the lastly, if he does overreact a little bit, or you maybe do go, you get to a higher level than what he needs and you do see some level of sensitivity to the situation uh, is don't coddle it. Okay. Um, Mm. He's going to rise to whatever you give him. So if he goes, yep, yep, yep. And then runs back to you and says, I'm so sorry, dad. And you say, oh, it's okay, buddy. You know, I, I love you. I just don't play with my chickens. Well, then what that does is, again, creates the habit of or the understanding of I have to run back to dad when I feel uh-huh. a collar, and that can apply to even lower levels. And that comes from a lack of true understanding of collar conditioning. Okay. And then, you know, a, a slight misusage, which a dog that is mentally stable and has a good foundation can adjust to that. A dog that does not have those two things, um, it can create a problem. But the mm-hmm. likelihood is pretty small. As long as we can see, you know, I can tell you pretty quick if we have a true understanding of collar conditioning or not. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, to caveat all of that, that's the question. Like, I don't want him to be afraid of birds. Um, he won't be. He'll just avoid uh, chickens. That's gotcha. it. Gotcha. And just the chickens in your yard. Because if you took him to somebody else's yard, he'd probably go after their chickens. And dogs are placed and situationally uh, oriented. So, um, you know, and so, but the, the same thing applies here. Okay. Even to the extent of game birds, we have pigeons and they are utilized for training. Well, our homing pigeons, once they're released for the day, they uh, typically don't trap until that evening. They may mm-hmm. come and go a little bit, but a lot of them like to stay out and fly around and do whatever until it's dark. So they'll land out there on the ground and I let my dogs out in the yard and there's pigeons out there. Well, they'll run over there and try and point them or run over there and try and catch them or they'll do whatever. Well, if I, if they have an e-collar on or if they have a situation, I'll handle them in that situation. No, leave that Mm. bird alone. We're not hunting. It's just a Mm. bird sitting over there in the yard. We don't hunt in the yard. You need to leave it alone. Mm. And 
Interesting. None of that affects the field aspect of things. None of it huh. affects hunting. Again, because we have a proper understanding of collar conditioning and I'm only applying the amount of correction that that specific dog can handle. So, mm-hmm. um, but the same, like I took, so I have, um, right. Uh, 17 dogs here that I personally own and I took them all for a run this morning. And when we got back up, typically when you have that pack type of situation, right, it's, it can be a little bit easier said than done to say, Oh, leave those birds alone. Right. Well, if there's (laughs) 17 of them and they're all, they see that bird, they're all going to chase that chucker, that one chucker that came back up to the, the yard or whatever. And then that, then they all want it and then they're fighting over it. And it's, it's just a totally different dynamic than having two dogs out or maybe even three dogs out in a field on a hunt. This is 17. And at that point yeah. they're, a, they're a pack and they're doing dog things, right? It's yeah. just yeah. natural nature kicks in. So, sure. um, I saw one tuck around the edge of the building and Nick's one of our old dogs. He's the dog that, um, deer tracks and, uh, he saw it and he kind of pointed it. And I was like, next, get over here. So he turned and then came back to me. So I pulled him off of that bird that he can visually see that's a game bird and all those situations. And it won't affect anything hmm. from, a, from a grand scheme other than it's in the yard. And that's a bird that he needs to leave alone and he needs to listen. That's what it right. comes down to. So that's, that's great to know. And, you know, that's, that's what I'm looking for is somebody who has the experience and the expertise, of course, uh, to, to be able to explain that, be confident in that. Um, uh, because like I said, I'm, I'm pretty fresh and pretty new. I'm learning. And the last thing I want to do is mess him up, mess the dog up, uh, for the future. So, uh, maybe one quick question. You kind of touched on this and, um, answer it as, as shallow or as deep as you'd like. Uh, but we just maybe a week or two ago, finally, um, I pulled the trigger on buying a, a good quality e-collar. Um, sure. I just put, just put it on him the first time yesterday we were going for a hike. Um, w- wanted to get him on it, wanted him to feel, feel what it's like to wear that. Uh, what do you recommend steps or process for the e-collar conditioning, or maybe you have a direction you can point me, uh, or, or however you want to answer that. Hundred percent. So, with that process, we utilize collars for reinforcement only, and what that means is basically you need to have already taught the behavior that you're getting ready to collar condition um, mm-hmm. beforehand. The collar is not for teaching anything except for when we get into those correction based things, and that's what you're teaching with the collar, and it's only a small select few things. So the mm-hmm. What we recommend is positive reinforcement training, which is a clicker and treats or specifically the dog's food. And what we do, this kind of, this is going to get a little bit long-winded, but it's a whole idea behind how dogs' um, brains work. So working dogs specifically and all dogs derive from essentially working genetics because all dogs are, um, are basically linked to wolves. Okay. Um, whether that's whichever path you follow in the history books of it was 13,000 years ago that they were domesticated or 130,000 years ago that they were domesticated, it happens. And there's different Mm -hmm. philosophies that fall into the category of, um, 
the, the wolves domesticated themselves by following the hunters and gatherers that wandered, the nomads, and they would eat carcasses, and they found that this was easier, so those wolves stuck around and kind of became more friendly, or that man domesticated the wolves themselves by selecting um, uh, the, the most friendly, least aggressive, and mm-hmm. keeping those around, getting rid of the aggressive ones, and then breeding those. And that seems to make sense because there was a study done um, recently with foxes, and they did that specifically, and it was like 10 generations of breeding out aggression, only breeding the most friendly foxes, that they started to have physical um, characteristics change, like moving into floppy ears and different tails and different coats and different. Interesting. um, You know, as they domesticated this line of foxes, they saw physical changes that then through line breeding and inbreeding on specific traits, they were able to turn them into individual breeds. Like that makes sense to me over an extended period of time, but nobody 100% knows other than, can genetically match dogs to wolves, okay? All right. So um, you have to think about your dog as a working animal. And in order to be mentally stable and mentally prepared for life, they need two things. They need leadership and they need a job, okay? Um, and that job needs to be directly related to resources. Resources are not... Uh, freebies in life, resources are earned. Um, think about things uh, that are resources for your dog. If I say that, what does that mean to you? What are some things you would consider resources for your dog? You said resources are things that are earned. Uh, resources are things that need to be earned. Need so, to be earned. Yep. Resources. Uh, I I will give you the easy one, and I want you to come up with some other. Okay. So, uh, mm-hmm. food is a resource, food. right? Mm-hmm. What are some yep. other resources that that he may have in his environment? It's going to be a little different for every dog, but um, I'm uh, I think I need uh, more more specific. Okay. So yeah, more um, context. Anything basically that's important to him in his life would be considered mm-hmm. a resource. So for us, resources would be you know like money or yeah. a house or vehicles okay. or food or any, anything that we want to work for that we drive for. That'd be the same thing yeah. for a dog. Um, one, just one big thing that, uh, pops into my head is, uh, time outside. Okay. Spending time outside. Yep. Um, uh, I mean, he's got, he's got some toys. Um, hmm. you're spot on with the direction. So these yeah. are these are 100% resources. Other things can be uh, attention from you guys. Mm, yeah, um, it can sure. be uh, uh, a spot on the couch or a spot on mm. his dog bed, whichever you guys mm. allow in your your situation, yeah. your dynamic there. Okay. Um, but basically, anything that it, that looks like to him to be something that looks like from your eyes, it's something that he enjoys. Mm-hmm. Um, those things need to be earned and those things need to be worked for. And that puts him in a mindset that is 1000% better. Okay. He understands life that way. He understands life through leadership and work. And without mm. those two things, it leads him to um, basically to his own devices. And, and what yeah. that ends up with is um, uh, uh, chaos within his brain. And yeah. then you end up with issues. Okay, you have a dog that doesn't um, have 
the right things working in their brain and they end up with anxiety and they end up with nervous twitches and they end up with um, aggression issues. That's a Mm -hmm. misunderstanding of roles within, I say pack loosely because um, there's some, some pretty hard lines that are drawn with different dog trainers in that. And there's some people that say to this day, there's a lot of naysayers that say, uh, pack mentality and dog training is a thing of the past. And anybody that talks about that is wrong. Okay. Well, first and foremost, that's the essence of how a dog's brain is built. So to say yeah. that pack dynamics don't exist is, is wrong. Okay, but how do they apply to people and being a pack is a totally different situation than how dogs interact with each other. Okay, but there are some things that are similar. The other side of it being that as you have these um, these pack dynamics, you also have the resources. And if the resources are are freebies, it's like anything to you. Like what's your favorite thing to eat for dinner? If you I mean, is it is it deer backstrap? Do you love? A beef steak. I mean, what? What yeah. is? Yeah, we'll say we'll say a, a nice ribeye. Okay, ribeye, right? Mm-hmm. So if you eat ribeye every single day, is it going to be your favorite thing anymore? No, of probably not. not. No. no, you get bored of it. It gets washed out. It's no longer exciting. It's no longer fun, right? So mm-hmm. it's the same thing with dogs. And you say he's got some toys. Probably has access to those all the time, um, mm-hmm. or whenever he wants them, right? So then. Mm-hmm. They no longer have any shine. They no longer have any importance. They get taken for granted and then they never get touched again. Yeah. Okay. So um, what would be beneficial is have the toys, find the things that he really likes. And this is something that's weird. Okay. This is going to sound weird. And these are the things that almost, they, they edge on that uh, kind of the, the borderline of not the way that I a hundred percent do things, but they'll say that if you, put your own saliva on one of the toys. Let's say you've got a rope toy. You spin on it a couple times. Yep. Dog's going to be able to smell that. Yeah. And you're important in his life. And if that toy is good enough for you, it's going to be good enough for him. Huh, and interesting. So it's worth a test, right? So if you've got a yeah. whole collection of toys, take them away for a week. They're all gone. Then pull them out, randomly pick one and do that. And then give him access to all of them and see which one he goes for the most, huh. which one he's most interested in. And that'd be just, just a fun experiment. I don't know if it'll work yeah. or not, but um, they fun. say that that's a thing. Mm-hmm. So first and foremost, take all the toys and put them away. Bring mm-hmm. one out that he gets access to for a little while. And granted, there are going to be some things that he's not interested in, but bring those things out, but have him work for them. And working can be something as subtle and as small as a basic obedience routine. Like you say, sit, good, here, good. Here's your toy, go play. And then um, that means in his mind that that's the baby step that he needs that he just worked for that. And then when it's done, it's better if you start and end these sessions, but he may lose interest in it and then you pick it up and it's gone. He doesn't have access to it again until you bring it back out. Well, if you have six or seven toys, that could be a weak rotation. You know, he only sees the special rope toy with the rubber thing on it once a, once a week or once every Mm -hmm. other week. Right. So, um, That is a big step. Then the next thing is any young dog, we train 100% with their meals. There are no extra kibble or there are no extra treats. Um, We utilize treats in the kennel because we have a shorter time window to work with those dogs. And we typically have to build an additional level of excitement. Um, 
So it's kind of like a crutch to help us make progress when ultimately what needs to happen is the dogs need to understand that working for their food is a fact of life. And that sets them up again for success from a a mental standpoint that that again, very important resource has to be earned. Mm -hmm. And um, in the beginning stages, we work for every single kibble because the meals are smaller with puppies. Mm -hmm. And then as they get bigger and faster at eating and the sessions kind of can become a little mundane in the sense of, you know, all of these things and it's pretty simple. Um, We do a short session and you get a handful with each and then you get a jackpot at the end. So it ends up being maybe five to 10 reps, but again, you just worked for this meal and, and then there's, there's life, right? So this evening we're going to go do something and you eat in the evening, but you got to eat pretty quick tonight. And I really am late and I'm running behind. I got to get ready and whatever. So how do we work for every meal? You say here, sit good. Here's your food, mm-hmm. right? So you still work, for something, them, but on a yeah. baby spirit. Yep. Something. something. Um, the next is uh, space is a resource and it's a very under understood and underutilized resource. Mm-hmm. Okay. Crate time should be a time of something that the dogs themselves cherish. Mm-hmm. That is individual time. That's alone time. That's that's yeah. and if it's done correctly, they will love that just the same. Feeding in their crate um, while giving them enough time that they're not stir crazy or pent up. If you have pent up energy, if you have a stir crazy dog, if you have those kind of situations, those things um, can also fall in the category. Like I don't want to be in this crate anymore because I want to go do something. Right now, you said he likes to be outside and play. Right. He likes to roam around the farm and whatever else. Yep. If that's independent time, it's really not an ideal thing for a young dog to be doing mm. because there he's learning that I control what is important to me at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's going to set you back um, in the long run of overall understanding of roles and expectations and importance of what these things are. So gotcha. do that roam around time together Mm -hmm. again with a, a resource that's earned. Mm -hmm. So you say, Hey buddy, come on, come over here, do these things. Good. Now go play for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then you get to explore. He gets to do his thing. And then in the middle of that, you can interrupt him again Mm. by saying, now come back over here. I want you to focus on this for a minute. And a really good way to do that is building a strong understanding that food is important. Mm-hmm. and utilize training times for that. So most of the time people kind of relegate to, I train in this room, in the kitchen or in the the dog room or in the whatever it may be. Well, then once they get really good there, you need to move it around. And mm-hmm. if you have enough focus and understanding from your dog that this meal, I have to earn it. And if I don't earn it, it's going to be gone. Um, and that's where the little bit of tough love category falls in there. And, mm-hmm. and that's ultimately what has to happen. So you start uh, a training session for a meal and we do this with little puppies and it happens really quick when they're eight weeks old. When you've got an eight month old, they can hold out a little longer if they're used to picking and eating on their own schedule. Um, but you say, all right, we're going to work for this now. And if they say, I'm not interested right now, I could care less what you're talking about, dad. That's a, you know, a, a crossed wires of what's important here. You're, you're in charge. You're the leader of these things. And though you're not mm-hmm. withholding anything, you are relegating when and how and how much and all of those things, mm-hmm. which is your job. So you take the meal away. It's gone. 
no more to be seen and come back later. It's just gone. Well, then that evening, they get their next opportunity. A dog's not going to go more than a day or maybe two if they're really fat and they have some extra reserves. But a day or two where they skip a few meals or only eat partial before they lose interest in the session before you have undivided attention. And that focus can be applied into teaching all kinds of things. That makes sense. So that makes sense. Teaching that way, then utilizing positive reinforcement to teach the individual behaviors. Here, sit, kennel. Um, then we we work on standing or whoa, which is going to apply to your bird dog stuff. Yeah. Um, those are some of the basics. You can teach other party tricks, but the other party tricks typically involve some level of uh, unwanted behavior mixed in with them. Like I taught my dog how to speak. Okay. And well, now they bark when they want stuff. <laughs> yeah. I taught my dog how to shake. Well, now they paw me when they want attention. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of think hard about the, the party tricks you want to teach, um, yeah. keep it to some basics. You can develop healing position and, mm-hmm. um, then work on leash manners and, um, that kennel cue that I mentioned, um, we generalize that and have them kennel means to go into a dog crate. Kennel means to go on a dog bed. Kennel mm-hmm. means to load up in a truck. And what that allows you to do is apply it to different hunting situations as well as apply it to life. Sure. So we go to a new blind to hunt with my buddy and ducks today. You know, he's got a, a duck blind. We go there. Well, his stand looks different than my stand. So I say kennel. And he says, well, wait a second. You help him kennel there. It works now. In two reps, we understand that is also kennel. We don't have to teach a new cue. Of right. Bob's uh, duck stand, you know, or whatever, right? We don't have to teach something new that day. It's just a generalized understanding of go someplace and stay there. So um, once you have a good understanding, then you generalize those behaviors by moving to new environments. So if you're good in the house, move to a different room, move to the garage, move to the backyard. And when you're good in all of those areas, and you can start to increase some levels of distraction, like even to the point of doing a training session when you get kind of towards the end of this, near or kind of within sight of the chickens, right? Or something mm-hmm. to that effect. But yeah. you're able to pull focus with obedience because um, he knows it's time to eat. Then then you're ready to move into collar conditioning. And people gotcha. often worry about collar smartness. Like I want my dog to listen with the collar, without the collar, all the things. Um, that requires a lot of consistency and the number one pe- uh, mistake that people make with that in causing that is they go, oh yeah, he's good now. And then he screws up and you say, all right, well, I'm going to put this collar back on you and I'm going to show you, you can't do that. Okay. Well now you just showed him that he can only not do that when, when he has yeah. his collar on. Gotcha. So consistency is key. Yeah. Being able to follow through. And utilizing the collar to reinforce behaviors you've already taught and have a good understanding of. And not just a good understanding in that simple environment. You have to add the distractions uh, yeah. slowly, but you have to add the distractions if you want to expect them to be able to listen through the distractions. Right. Because so, that's a real, real world, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, hey, that's that's a tremendous answer. And I appreciate you going through the, the <laughs> levels and the steps there because- yeah, I could see how, or I can see how that background information and then the buildup um, ultimately leads and, and sets that dog up to be able to be successful uh, when you are making that step towards the collar. So I appreciate that. 
Thank you. 100%. Thank you. And, and for your, your guidance and your information on the chickens, that's going <laughs> to, going to save us some headaches. So it'll, it'll be good. I think you've got this in the bag and I'm happy to help you any way we can. Um, I think, uh, sir, I've taken enough of your time today and I really appreciate it. Um, I do want to uh, mention to everybody where, uh, where can they find you? Where can they reach out to you if they do have questions? Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. I am, uh, primarily in the social media realm. I'm on Instagram and then the website is archerystrong.com. And even if people have questions, they want to run something by me, pick my brain on something, you're welcome to reach out. Um, you don't have to be looking to dive in or jump in as a client or anything like that. So it's perfect. Yeah. All right, everybody, that is uh, what we have time for today. I appreciate y'all for being here. Thank you, Christian, for joining me. And, Absolutely. Uh, I'm the guy with the pink gun. We'll see you in the next video. <laughs> Love it. Thank you, Ethan. I appreciate it.